audio synced, lights, camera, background, <laughs> rain, fog, <laughs> action. It's getting cold in the Midwest, I hear. Yeah. Can you to that? Yeah, it is. It's getting cold. It's, uh, it's too soon, but, uh, you know, that's... Yeah, it's uh, too soon. The, the Madison summer is always uh, ephemeral at best, so... Oh, really? Yeah. 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 But that's what you get for living, you know, in basically Canada. <laughs> yeah, the province of southern Canada. <laughs> right. Minnesota, Michigan, and Wisconsin, I always thought just south Canada. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> they play hockey in Wisconsin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, hockey on the lake, you got the whole thing. Except yeah. for except for the healthcare and the, you know, decent, uh, you know, public servants. <laughs> yeah, and respectable covid response right right <laughs> yeah. yeah and public yeah. transportation and uh, you know, yeah. all the rest yeah <laughs> right 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 everything that higher, you expect to see in a developed country <laughs> higher life expectancy <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> lower infant mortality rate yeah all works um yeah no um yeah but 10 episodes in 10 episodes how's it feel on your side pretty good i mean i i kind of have privately had the 10 episode as a sort of benchmark of moving from we started a podcast to we have a podcast oh nice so you know six months 10 episodes in i think um yeah i I feel squarely in we have a podcast territory as opposed to we started a podcast territory I, i i do wonder what is the what is like the is infant mortality rate the right term to use for for this, but oh, I like, wonder what's like the like, infant, yeah, for podcasts. Like, yeah, how quickly? Yeah. How quickly do they do they just drop off and stop? Right, like where's the half life? And say, yeah, um, that's 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 a good question. Yeah, I wonder like how many podcasts, the total expected life expectancy gets dramatically higher exponentially as you make it past this 10 episode point if that made any sense at all exactly no that, that makes perfect sense to me but yeah. i could not have articulated that any worse but yeah I, i'm sure you could have if you tried yeah i, I, I mean 10 is obviously arbitrary just because you know we use decimal system but um hmm. I, I, I do wonder I, I it may be it may be closer to like 20 like I, I wonder if it's like really like a one the one year mark Maybe. Hmm. His, oh, yeah, that's like, a good maybe, point. Maybe it's right. a function of time rather than episodes created. Yeah. Um, or, but, or maybe uh, but it's still, yeah. Or maybe it's true to music in base twelve. So if we make it past the twelve episode mark, there you go. Then we're really, really part of the game. <laughs> Hell yeah. I, I I think it's still still notable. I also had it in my head the sort of you know if we can get to uh, ten episodes without hitting a brick wall of. You know, like, what the hell do we talk about? <laughs> <laughs> That's the least of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> then we're good. So. Yeah. It's smooth yeah. sailing now. <laughs> to all the listeners out there, you could probably, I don't know, or maybe you couldn't, but several of the episodes we've we've done, we had no topic planned, and we just turned the mics on and started talking, and right. there you have it. <laughs> yeah. So I think we're going to do a similar thing today. Yeah, yeah. Well, way to spoil it, Shreeder. <laughs> oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> nah, nah. Yeah, spoiler no, alert. We have... we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> you know, it, su- such is life. We're all just kind of winging it. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, speaking of, let's dive into some follow-up. We had a really cool episode last time, I think, about about John Cage and aleatoric music. And 
John Cage, as we kind of talked about, was he can be a polarizing figure, which I'm sure he would find hilarious. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, you had some thoughts on John Cage, and as we've had a fair amount of listeners reach out to us, uh, remarking on the past episode, we've gotten some food for thought and some feedback, but I'd be curious if you don't mind starting us off on what you thought about or what you heard. Well, yeah, I mean, again, I, I got some really um, positive feedback on that on that episode, and but we didn't talk too much about um, the way that John Cage is talked about, like the sort of meta conversation around John Cage. Right. Because I, right. I think there's 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 been so much crap written about him um, mm-hmm. by people who like adore him and people who hate his guts. So right. I, th- I think that whole meta conversation is really interesting. Um, well, yeah, first, just to set the stage, we're not sure if where people are listening to this episode in the, in the grand context. But yes, John Cage, a 20th century aleatoric composer, avant-garde composer who wrote the piece we talked about last time quite extensively, 433, which is just four and a half minutes of silence. And he also wrote sonatas and interludes for a prepared piano. These two pieces we talked about quite a bit last time. But some of the things I ended up talking with some listeners about, which I thought was really interesting, and they brought up some points that I hadn't quite thought about that I thought were really interesting. One of those points being what's really kind of cool about 433, you know, we talked about last time how it's a piece where John Cage really wants you to listen, right? It's not a piece where you sit back and and enjoy it, right? It's not a typical, I, th- I think I said a Mozart symphony last time or something, but really he wanted yeah. you to pause and listen because it's silent in this concert hall or this recital hall you're listening to it in. And we all know the world around you is not silent because there's all these noises and things. And one of the points that people were bringing up is this whole relationship between performer and audience that John Cage was trying to really again, amplify, as we kind of touched upon last time, amplifying these truths about music, right? That silence is the blank canvas all music is written on, but why can't that be the subject itself? But this relationship between audience and performer, I thought was really interesting. And and the more I thought about it, the more curious I got about it, where music, the whole concert hall, is still a pretty recent phenomenon and pretty recent invention and not necessarily needed when you go back to music i mean of course in the medieval era from chant music in in churches just to music on the streets of medieval cities like paris and stuff the audience and performer weren't really separated you go to a performance nowadays and it's very much the performers are in a tuxedo on stage and the audience the peasants are are <laughs> all arranged to face you and you know have a concert program and are dressed a certain way and are expecting something and again to go back to our very first topic we talked about the applause and tradition between that's very recent back in medieval europe right most music was performed at least most non-religious music was performed on the streets and it was just kind of the sound it they added to the soundtrack of everyday life right so you'd have the music playing in this corner of medieval paris along with the noise of the horses and buggies trampling around in the in the market happening on the street so music wasn't really divided into this structure we've come to accept this divide between performer and audience and so john cage right with 433 
again, he's asking the audience to really participate in the performance, right? Almost like the classic riddle. If a fall, the tree falls in the woods and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? If 433 happens and no one's there to hear it, is it a piece of music? In a way, kind of not, right? So with 433, John Cage was really asking for the audience to really um, join in and be a part of the performance. And the way music always used to be, and from the medieval through the renaissance and much of the baroque period too where there wasn't this divide we placed between audience and performer but then more recently we have put that divide in there so john cage was harkening back to this different era of music yeah the the concert hall is as we know it is really a bourgeois creation the edifice was constructed to fill the space that the that the churches and the courts occupied before Mm. and Mm. and the town square occupied even before that but at a certain point music became dissociated from royalty and the church and the upper class and um, it became the it became part of the 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 idiom of the sort of middle class paying public who 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 would um, see performances in in sort of public civic places this is a very recent phenomenon and I think a lot of the a lot of the stuff that came from that like the cult of virtuoso um, mm-hmm. the, the sort of cult of, of um, performance worship or performer worship um, it was all it was all part of this dissociation that that happened at that point where where the 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 act of just sort of appreciating music or just learning music casually um, as a part of your education became discontinuous with the act of performing music on stage for a paying public as a virtuoso. Those, those two things became separate, right? Being, being a concert performer was no longer a natural extension of learning about music as part of your education. It, it was you, it was it, it, a whole different animal where, um, virtuosity was expected and, and perfection was expected. And it, it created this, I think, weird and maybe a little bit creepy relationship between <laughs> audience and performer. Um, in a way, it's, it's similar to, the, to sort of move at one level up. It's, it's similar to the, to the relationship between performer and composer, where there, used, there was maybe a time when, when the composer was also performer or all the performers were composers. Right. Right. And, you look and, at like Bach or someone who right exactly performed his works. Yeah, mm. exactly. But with this thing that you know, like in the late 18th century, going on really, um, as recent as that, it became this thing where I think I've said somewhere on the on the podcast before, it became almost in my eyes like a parody of religion where the composer is God and the performer is a priest and the audience are sort of the flocking masses. <laughs> I think you may have said that before, but it must have gotten cut because I don't think that oh, okay. made the final. But, but that's a really good analogy. <laughs> yeah. No, it's kind of it's kind of curious, right? And I mean, Bach was kind of a turning point in a lot of this, right? He was the first composer. I guess it could be argued, but he was in a way the first composer who was the thing we now call a composer, right? Because before that, composers were employed by were exclusively employed by. A royal court or by a church and all the music was for that context so so Bach was a composer that wrote music just 
to write music, in addition to also writing music for some uh, for some religious texts, as he did, wrote some very great pieces for that. But he also wrote music just for just to write music. And again, it's kind of silly to think about nowadays, but Bach, I, I mean, he was a turning point in so many ways in the history of music. So, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, Bach is is really interesting in that in that sense. He he wrote. Obviously, he wrote, I think, four cantata cycles for, for, the, for the church in Leipzig. That sounds um, right. That sounds right. Yeah, and, and some other sacred music. But he also wrote a, a bunch of, um, you know, just secular works for, for, for keyboard and other instruments like solo violin, solo cello, just to explore the possibilities of, of instruments and, and keys and um, mm-hmm. try to get to the essence of this thing that we call music. And on top of that, uh, on top of, like in Leipzig, on top of his duties as, um, as cantor at St. Thomas Church, um, he was also, he was also um, I forget what the title is, but he was involved in the Collegium Musicum, which was just a, mm-hmm. I believe it was a group of um, musicians who were, Basically, like, um, like prototypes for conservatory students or professional musicians now, and they would meet in you know coffee shops and in other public places and um, sort of basically just sort of sight read chamber music together and um, perform secular music in public civil sorry in public civic places, mm-hmm. um, and that was kind of a new ish thing, and Bach had a lot to do with. Um, with making that a more established and, and like firm tradition. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. So yeah, I, th- I think in terms of that, that transition that happened between, um, the, between music being in the churches and the courts and being sort of in the coffee houses and in public places, Bach certainly had a lot to do with that. No, absolutely. Absolutely. This whole conversation is, is utterly fascinating. And John Cage was trying to point out, one of the many things he was trying to point out was that was a conversation not happening at the time. So, so. yeah, to yeah, he was um, he, he was he was always he was always interested in in you know in like the politics of anarchy or the politics of radical egalitarianism, and and four thirty three is really the the logical extension of that. I, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, it really, it really completely levels the the playing field. Um, there's no meaningful distinction between the composer of 433, the performer of 433, and the audience of 433. It's all right. they're all equally implicated in the making of this music, and it also levels right. out the musical hierarchy because all sounds, intentional and unintentional sounds, are equally viable for the um, for the um, realization of this piece. So uh, right. it is the sort of ultimate. Um, it is the sort of ultimate in in egalitarian music. It I, is. I, I also yeah. think it's important to. I mean, I really like what you said last time about how pieces like four thirty three really need context, and a good museum curator will provide that for you. Um, so I, I think it's important to to um, to really look at the at the predecessors for. For something like 433, which um, you you mentioned the the sonatas and, and interludes last time, um, and I thought that was a yeah I'd never actually made that connection before you brought that up, mm. oh, cool. so I sort of spent some more time th- thinking about it and um, 
um, there's a there's a quote from from Debussy. I don't know where I don't know where it's from, but John Cage mentions it in one of his essays. I think it's called um, "The History of Experimental Music in the United States" or something. Um, okay. <laughs> and, and and Debussy, I can let me try to pull it up here. Um, yeah. So 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 Debussy says um, that any sounds in any succession are henceforth free to be used in a musical continuity. Um, and, and I think you know it's it's interesting that that you can you can go all the way back to to Debussy and then sort of keep going through um, like Charles Ives the the sort of pieces that he did for pianos tuned two quarter tones apart um, Henry Cowell like using the the, the tone structure uh, tone clusters and um, onto um, the sonatas and interludes, like he said, you know, that seems like a logical extension that at first he said, uh, John Cage made this, you know, it's almost as if he made this proposition, um, all sounds are viable sounds for music. Right. And then the next logical, it's, it's a radical step, but it's, it's also the, the perfectly logical next step, which is that um, all sounds are henceforth available for music, including no sounds. Yeah, so, right. You know, I think it's really the way that you said that last time got me thinking about it, and I think it's really interesting oh, to cool. to think about. It's 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 crazy to try to actually think about piecing like linking together the works of of Debussy with something like four thirty three. But um, it's a good example of how you can take you know one perfectly logical step at a time and end up at something that's completely unrecognizable. You know. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, we have a very specific definition sometimes of what's music and or what sounds are a part of western music these pitch is a very central part of western music not a centric a part of a lot of eastern music or you go to cultures of sub-saharan africa and pitch is almost a foreign concept for them having a note a b or c no where there's a lot more timbre oriented and rhythmically oriented so timbre is like the actual quality of the sound right i mean what we would call the sound of a flute or sound of a trumpet, but there they they don't even group it into that kind of specific regiment, right? There, even if you go to very primitive cultures, when it's different types of drums, that they can find subtle nuances of different kinds of 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 percussive instruments, and then the rhythmic focus, right? Where rhythm is a big part of Western um, music as well, but again, it's not it's not the 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 main part it's it's dare i say it's not the biggest part right when you're learning piano as a kid you learn notes before you learn rhythms <laughs> yeah but so it, it's it's just funny right again asking these questions that john cage was asking and again i think 433 is a question more than anything else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's it's really peace that's a question and he invites the listener to formulate their own answer and one of those questions is this piece is so foreign but why is it so foreign really i mean it's it's foreign and it just feels out of context because of the context we painted around it which is our thing we call music in the west is derived from pitch and notes and performers and an audience and this ritualistic kind of uh environment we create music in I think rhythm is secondary to pitch in Western music, both in like the order that you learn it. But even if you look at, um, if you look at some of the most complicated pieces of music in the Western tradition, and you compare it to something like 
um, Indian classical music, whether it's Carnatic or Hindustani music, um, you have to come away with the conclusion that that the rhythmic structures are woefully underdeveloped. That's mm. that's almost a matter of like un- undisputable fact, right? Um, even the most complicated pieces by um, Schoenberg or someone, sure, um, sure, you know, compared to compared to you know pretty basic pieces in other traditions, the rhythm is yeah. just is just not not a um, concept that's that's been developed in a super refined way so right i mean rhythm in western culture is kind of a vehicle for harmony and melody yeah exactly right. yeah and even when we talk about um even when we, like a lot of times when you talk about sort of like harmonic acceleration you're, you're really like something like that you're, you're talking about like the rhythm is getting faster but really the the, the end like the result of like the rhythm like picking up um is that the harmonies are changing faster, you know, and that 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 way of thinking about it is 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 hilarious. And and John Cage, like I think we mentioned last time, how how Schoenberg, his teachers said said to him that he had no ear for for harmony, so yeah, so he yeah. set about just um, dismantling. Um, he like sort of systematically just started dismantling the, any need for employing harmony in his music, mm-hmm. which I think is really interesting and you know in a weird way is kind of inspiring. Like he had this, um, <laughs> he had, like he had this one thing that he like completely sucked at doing, and instead of being told that he can't be a, a composer because of this thing, he just said, "Okay, I'm just not, I'm not going to care about this thing at all. I'm just going right. to like work around it." Um, yeah, yeah. I mean in Another point, too, that some listeners brought up uh, to me in Instagram chats and stuff, which I think is a really sharp and brilliant point, it's that you were talking earlier about the egalitarianism that John Cage was proposing for music. And I think the more you think about that, that really reigns true and is really cool and special about 433 is that, you know, what... Again, he was asking these big questions, right? What is a musician, right? What is a composer? These very fundamental questions. What's a performer? With 433, you know, you the listener, you don't need some fancy instrument that's shiny and costs thousands of dollars. You don't need years of musical training and stuff to put on your very own performance of 433, right? In your apartment, in your living room. You could do it tonight. <laughs> you don't need all these things that we think musicians need to be musicians or to perform a piece of music. You could put on a performance of 433 that's just as valid and just as interesting as any performance Streeter and I could put on and maybe even better than, <laughs> than yeah. anyone we could do. Totally, totally. And, you know, the the fact that it's four minutes and 33 seconds and three movements long is also completely unnecessary. And right. I, I don't actually know if this is official, but I think John Cage wrote a piece called zero, zero, zero later on <laughs> because, because, uh, <laughs> he, <laughs> it's an unperformable piece. Yeah. <laughs> like, it'll always end before you can start it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> seems to be some meta commentary on life there, but I don't know what it is. <laughs> I'll let other people that, figure that one out. That is brilliant. That is brilliant. That's my favorite piece of music ever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I just learned about 
he 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 ended up sort of like half regretting 433 because he called it needlessly conservative, which I think is a wonderful phrase um, <laughs> because of the sort of arbitrary time and the movement structure and stuff. So really, the mm. I, even even the constraint of 433 and stuff like that, you don't you don't need it, and it doesn't even have to be this particular piece of silence. Um, you know, so so much of what so much of John Cage's ha- happenings, as they were called. Um, require absolutely no training at all and and they just mm-hmm. need they just need you to be sort of inventive in the way that you create um sort of structures around around sound like any way to organize sound that you can think of is is just as valid as any other way as long as it's interesting there are more and less mm. interesting ways of doing it mm. but um you know the, the particular thing of like le- learning your scales and and performing sort of tonal music perfectly is is a is a um, is just as absurd as any other thing that you can think of John Cage doing. Um, right, right, right. And yeah. it's funny, the thing you'll hear people say undoubtedly when you talk about John Cage or 433 is, <laughs> I could have composed that. And to which I remember you famously said, or famous to me at least, yeah, you could, but you didn't. <laughs> yep. <laughs> to be fair... The reason, it's easy for us to say this now after the fact, but John Cage, the reason you could argue, the reason why he was able to come up with these new ideas and revolutionary, in quotes, concepts, was because of the context he was in. He was training to be a composer. He was obsessing about harmony in the traditions of classical Western music. It's because of this and uh, what he was learning and trying to become it's because of these things that he, he came up with these ideas that we now think are juvenile. But back then, they weren't so much. They're, again, we still talk about 433. <laughs> yeah. We're still talking about it now in the year 2020. But it's because of where it came from. There's, there's, something, there's something to be said for John Cage as a sort of guiding spirit of... of a, a guiding spirit of his generation and they sort of a fomenter of radical consciousness um, of that time because um, in a way like in a way his battle is won just by the fact that we're talking about it right yeah yeah, um, yeah. He, he was sort of fighting in the weeds you know being called all the things that he was being called so that um, people doing relatively more normal things um, have like no problem doing it now like the the idea of being totally avant-garde or crazy in your compositional methods it doesn't really um it doesn't really bother anyone anymore i don't think and i think Mm, john mm. cage had a lot to do with that um right right in a way it's almost like a compliment right like oh it's so avant-garde of you to yeah i I was gonna say earlier um i shouldn't forget this but um glenn gould i think thought that john cage was misguided at best and a charlatan at worst um but but i think they had a lot in in common and one of those things is that um glenn gould said somewhere i don't i don't remember where but he said something like in an ideal world um there would be no need for art um the 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 comfort and the pleasure that it that it gives people would would fall on um would fall on empty ears it would be completely unnecessary in an ideal world and in this ideal world, um, the audience would be the artists, and their life would be art. 
And I think John Cage really believed that as well. He has said similar things where he would say, you know, if I'm being perfectly honest, my favorite music, even more than the music that I compose, is just the music that I hear when I'm just sitting around and I'm hearing mm. my life. Um, that's that's mm. the ideal music and that's the ideal um, art. So there's there's something to be said for um, in, in this in the sort of spirit of like of egalitarianism um, yeah. that um, and I wonder if there's any tie-in with with sort of Zen um, Buddhism and like meditation enlightenment kind of stuff where um, you sort of obviate the need for art and the hierarchical structures that it that it creates if you just sit down and listen and listen to the silence and um, sort of um, enjoy the moment that you're the, the sort of recapitulation of, of your life moment by moment you know right right interesting interesting i don't know if there's anything to go off there but yeah i mean one of my favorite quotes i honestly forget who said it maybe that speaks to how powerful the quote is <laughs> that almost doesn't matter anymore art makes nothing happen it is a way of happening hmm i really like that similarly I think John again. John Cage said something. Said something like, um, "Art is not the, the creation of any of any one person. It's it's a process set set in motion by a number of people, hmm. and a lot of his happenings were were like that too. But obviously, like you were saying last time, that just amplifies the truth. That's really just a banal truth of everyday music. Even if you just compose a regular <laughs> piece of music and you play it." yourself um right. it, it may seem like it's a creation that you have come up with on your own <laughs> and played on your own but it's not it's a even that even something like a beethoven sonata was not a creation of beethoven it was it was the one end result of many in, in a process that was set forth by an entire society and civilization um, right right so right no exactly i mean the class right the cliche you stand on the shoulders of those who came before you i mean right, right. it's not not true right yeah. So those are some, at least for now, final thoughts on John Cage. We promise we'll we'll move to something else. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I think we can we can definitely put John Cage aside and and um, we'll come back to him. Yeah. Probably eventually. I mean, I think at a certain point you can't talk about you can't talk about art after 1950 or so without yeah. without sort of being in the orbit of John Cage. So sure, sure. You know, we'll, oh, and one thing we should bring up too is probably by the time this uh, episode is released. Schroeder will have a Medium article slash essay he writes on John Cage, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, th- <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I wrote a um, small-ish, medium-sized little essay or whatever you want to call it. Um, just to sort of... It, it started just because, uh, like I said before, I was really thinking a lot more about John Cage after our conversation last time because um, mm-hmm. you said some things that I'd never considered and... Um, that just was sort of rattling oh, cool. around in my head. So the way I figure out what the hell is rattling around in my head is that I try to write it down. So it became this thing. And yeah, it'll, it'll probably be up um, by the time this episode yeah. is released. So we'll maybe put a link to it in the show notes. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. Sounds good. All right. So cheers to John Cage. <laughs> cheers to John Cage. Uh, all right. So, I mean, so I'm not sure if you had any ideas you wanted to touch upon, but there's an idea or two I kind of wanted to spring into and I think could be a fun spring pad, but I'm, I'm totally open to 
what you got? I got nothing. I, I've done. I've done. <laughs> that makes the choice easier. Yeah, <laughs> I've done no preparation for this. So, yeah, hit me. Uh, with, awesome. Hit me with okay. what you got. All right. So, um, I have something interesting that I thought we could bring up and jam on. So, are you aware, Schreeder? I I've seen a lot of videos of this lately on Instagram, and I've always been aware of what this is. This kind of piano is. And um, I think it's a cool idea and a cool concept. And again, a little polarizing in the, in, dare I say, our circle. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, it, everyone has an opinion um, about this. And this is, are you aware of the, are you aware of the Steinway Spirio series pianos? I don't actually think so. Okay. Well, you're aware of what a player piano is? No. Okay. All right. So, you should look this up real quick. All um, right, all right. I, um, I'm feeling very, very stupid here. No, is, I mean uh, it's it's funny. It's um, it's. It, I mean, I was gonna say it's well known in the piano circle and in the billionaire circle for people <laughs> for, for, for people that can afford them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> What's the quote from that movie Withmull and I? Withmull and I. It's it's uh, free for those who can afford it and impossible to get for those who can't. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so if you search Steinway Spirio, it's spelled the way you think it is. Um, Says the person who can't spell. <laughs> even I spelled this one correct. Yeah, um, no, I, I, I got it. I got correctly. it. Correctly. Oh, jeez. Um, oh, oh, okay. I, I, so this is a self-playing piano. Exactly, exactly. I see. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't know that's what those were called, actually. So there's a bunch of them, right? Like Yamaha makes some. Uh, but anyways, so <laughs> this... Uh, Steinway Spirio piano is really cool. So, I mean, it's a grand or concert grand piano this system is installed on. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's a player piano. It's a self-playing piano, so it plays itself. And what's cool is it interfaces nowadays with an iPad, and so you can control it completely from the iPad, right? And you can even play, like, historic performances they've recreated with stereo. So it'll be a video of Arthur Rubinstein playing the piano, and it's it's actually playing in front of you as the video is going on the iPad of him himself in black and white footage from many years ago playing and things. And it's pretty impressive technology. I mean, it's very impressive technology, I think, for how well this works and how beautifully it works. So I'm curious if you have any initial thoughts on this player piano phenomena. So you're really getting my like fresh opinion on this because I barely know what this is and Perfect. I have never spent any time thinking about it. So yeah, are you staring at it like right now? I'm staring at it right now. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, if, if people are here for completely uninformed, stupid opinions, <laughs> you've come to the right person. <laughs> um, I think this is. I mean, this is really impressive technology. Right. I have no idea how they do any of this. Yeah. But let's... We'll get we into that in a pause. bit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I was just going to pause for a second and just say from an engineering perspective, this is very impressive. Yes. Because the worst, the worst material to work with as a, as, a, as a mechanical engineer is wood. Right? Oh, really? It's very unpredictable. It changes the composition and texture and characteristics will change via the humidity and the temperature and the aging of it. Wood is very hard to work with. And then, the, I mean, these you know, pianos are made out of wood with metal strings and a metal frame. But a piano is wood. The keys are wood. The hammers are controlled by wood. So this very complex mechanical system 
is with electronics and wood it's just kind of mind-blowing actually i mean it's, it's just nuts it's just nuts so it's really cool how they're able to make that work so i mean before we get into any of the higher or lower level conversations <laughs> about this and what it means you just have to pause and, and respect the engineers at Steinway that make this <laughs> and yeah. Yamaha and the other piano makers that make equivalent systems. Totally. I mean, yeah, this is, this is really crazy technology that for someone who knows nothing about engineering, it's just, it's mind blowing. So here, I'll also just rearticulate. I mean, we can link to this in the show notes yeah. too, if people want to get a visual of what's going on here. Um, but yeah, what it basically is, it's, you push a button on your iPad and the piano just starts playing itself. And you can control all these aspects of the piano. Which piece? You can even select what key you want the piano to play it in. This, you pick a piece, right? Uh, Beethoven's Pathetique Sonata. Uh, Sonata number eight, I believe that is. Um, and then you can cycle through and be like, all right, I want to hear how Horowitz, Vladimir Horowitz, the great Russian pianist, played it. And as we said, Arthur Rubinstein, you know, his recording of it is now... The, the piano's playing it and I just want to know so like so I think it's it's kind of again like it's, it's amazing technology but it seems it seems like it it seems like it's gonna like it, it just it fetishizes any single performance in a way that I think you ought not to as opposed to hmm. the sort of continual um the sort of continual act of thinking about music. Like it seems to, for some reason, there seems to be like a difference between just going to like whatever streaming service you use and, you know, choosing a recording of Horowitz playing the Pathetique Sonata Mm -hmm. and just sort of being like, oh yeah, that was just how Horowitz did it that time. Um, Hmm. And like moving on. And, And there seems to be some difference between that and like, I want to see the way that the keys on the piano were pressed down. Um, right, and like right. I want to hear it like in this piano, like in my house, like this thing and the the the, um, the keys are being pressed. It seems like it seems like there's something there that's it it concretizes something that ought to be ephemeral more than more than is comfortable for me. Interesting. Um, and it also it also seems to be. Um, even though obviously it's not, it's not like if you select Horowitz's recording of the Pathetique. Obviously, it's not like the. It's not like the player piano is is conjuring up the ghost of Horowitz, there to play it for you, but it still seems to cross some, some, uh, probably stupid boundary in my mind, where. I now feel like I have like conscripted a dead Horowitz who should just be resting peacefully to like play in my living room. <laughs> it feels like messed up and it, it just feels like I, I I don't know it's probably just cuz I haven't I haven't been around these things but it, it feels yeah. it feels like uh like we're crossing some imaginary boundary that I don't know it it would be interesting to sort of like I want to ask I have a couple of questions for you but one sure. of them is what do what do people really get out of this? Yeah, and yeah. the other question is: Is there any daylight between this and what is probably inevitably going to happen, which is um, sort of recreating like holograph or hologram performances <laughs> right. in your living room or something? Is there any daylight between these things? So sure, yeah. So the first question was the value you get out of it, more or less, right? Yeah, yeah. And so 
Yeah, I think what what you really get is just a better sound quality. Okay, well, that's, that's fair. That's that. fair. <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, I think that's the main propositional value here, right? It's it's the sound of a piano in your home playing. Right. Sort of, right. Right. Uh, am I missing something? It's no. You're right. You're right. Yeah. That's going to sound way more realistic, right, than any recording probably could. Uh, probably could. I'm sure. Eventually, we'll get to the state where they can. But right. But yeah. So I think that's the first thing you get. Um, also, people, you get the sense maybe that they're, they're not listening to a piece. They're listening to a piece being performed. Hmm. Whether that's right or wrong or important or unimportant is a conversation, but they'll sit down in the chairs right near it and listen to it. Maybe the way a record kind of is, right? Because that's ah. one of the things I, I love about records. And I know records have entered a resurgence. Um, there's, a few th- there's a few things I really love about records that I think have been lost. And one of them, oh, before we even talk about that, there's a really great, I think it was... I want to say it was a BBC article. We could link to it, but it was a fascinating article from maybe five or six years ago about how the rise of streaming services like Spotify and such have led to a rise in record sales. It's it's a really interesting article. Um, if, if this isn't too much of a tangent, what's the? Can you give me like a potted thesis? So here's part of the thesis: is that fifty percent of records sold are never opened, which I think is hilarious. <laughs> right? They're put up as decoration on the wall. Hilarious, if unsurprising. Yeah, so I think that's interesting. Um, I mean, I'm not gonna lie. Like, you know, me, me, and Annalise have flirted with like getting records, and we don't have a record player. So right, right. <laughs> the apartment I stayed in with you guys, right? You guys had that German record player from from 1932 or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was fucking dope. Yeah, and it, all the instructions were all in German. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember one time. I forget if I came home from being somewhere else or if I just. Um, came outside into the living room from my from my room after a night, and I saw like the record player was like open, and the Chet Baker album was out, um, and the the my copy of the Yale Shakespeare was opened to one of the sonnets. I forget which one. Again, a side note to the side note: Have you seen a or a, have you watched Patrick Stewart's reading of the mm. Shakespeare sonnets? Ever since quarantine started? Yeah. Yeah, I haven't been keeping up with every single one of them, but they show up on my timeline every once in a while. What a man. What yeah. a voice. I know. I love to hear her speak, yet well I know that music hath a far more pleasing sound. I grant I never saw a goddess go. It's surprisingly hard to read a Shakespeare sonnet. I don't know if you've ever tried Oh, really? Yeah. Um, it's hard to... In general, if you're reading Shakespeare out loud, it's hard to get the right mix between sounding drawl and sounding, you know, like sing-songy, you know. It, it's, right. It's, it obviously should come as no surprise seeing as, like, Shakespeare is the sort of theater equivalent of Mozart, and Mozart's really damn hard to play. But yeah. Shakespeare is really hard to read without sounding like an idiot. Right. It's like Mozart. Mozart's... It's easy to play the notes, but it's... I, I had a piano teacher that put it well, I think, where the challenge with Mozart is to play it so it feels inevitable. Hmm. To get it so it feels so logical that whatever whatever just happened, whatever notes you just played, were going to happen and were going to be played. Right. And that's the challenge of Mozart. 
we can, talking yeah, about? We were, oh, records. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so it, pro- <laughs> Sorry. it provides a similar value to that of records, you were saying. Yeah. So, so right. So, so the point I was trying to make was how the streaming services have accelerated record sales. And I think it's how one extreme accelerates the other extreme, right? So streaming services, it's all, all of a sudden, all of music, okay, not all of music, but pretty much all of music you could possibly want from a click is now available by a click, right? Yeah. So you go out on a run, you could click on a song, this, that, you can listen to whatever you want whenever you want it, right? So that's, that's one extreme of music. Records are close to the other extreme of music, which is the performance, I'm listening to this now and here, and it's it's performance. And records are kind of an embodiment of that, right? You don't really select a track. You don't really, right? You put it on, and especially records that were made to be records. It's not this nonsense of Katy Perry releasing an album as a record. No, yeah, she yeah. made it as a digital album. The Beatles' White Album is a record. Two records, but it's a, it's, it's a record, right? A and there's... Point. a there's a very there's very much a logic for the song they put first on the A side and last on the A side, then first on the B side, and then last on the B side. And it's very um, very much an experience, I guess is what I'm getting towards. Yeah, it's very experiential. You put the record on and you listen to it the way the the artist intended for you to, to listen to it. You know, that just made me realize something that I've always sort of been wondering if I'm crazy to think this, but the, now that you have just said that, I wonder if, if I'm actually right, which is that I, I think have have classical performers, I don't know about, like, I don't listen to much outside of classical music, so I don't know, but at least in the classical world, have people gotten worse about um, programming their albums? Hmm. Like, it seems like it seems like yeah. I haven't I haven't I haven't heard like an album recently that had like a creative performance order where like I just set uh, yeah, it and yeah. listened to it and it 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 has this the, the aspect of like one one piece of music flowing into another making a coherent sense. It seems like now when people release albums it's it's almost like a catalog where it's like I've recorded these four pieces here they it's just you know they're here yeah. you can listen to yeah. them or not you know. <laughs> right, no, but it's kind of a have at it. Listen to it in whatever order you want. Yeah, because I know you're not going to bother listening to the whole thing anyway. Like, in order, right, in right. one sitting. Yeah, there's probably something to that. There's probably something to that where it's, yeah, where, again, records are very experiential. It's something you experience. You listen to it from front to back. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. Um, a good example, I guess, there's a recent release of the very good Georgian pianist, what's her name, Katya... I can never say Georgian last names because they're so hard to pronounce. I do not know. I do like, not know how you pronounce her last name. And we're talking Georgia, the country, not <laughs> not North Atlanta suburbs. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Um, Butchashvili or something like that. Um, she's a very good, very good pianist, and I think she plays Rachmaninoff very well, um, better than most. Hmm. And but okay, so she released uh, an album a year or two ago, and it's a really good performance of I think Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Two and Piano Concerto Three. But they're back to back on the album, and it's come on. No one's gonna listen to that all the way through, right? Both of them right after each other. So yeah. it's um, she released it just to be listened to, and I think it was released exclusively to streaming. So case in point. There you go. Was, yeah, but you see that more like where people will release like um, a solo, like they'll be like, I've I've released an album that's a an album of like flute. It's like a you know the flute recital album. That's like a comedy. Right, 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 right. It, it, <laughs> I swear it seems to me that at some point the recital was actually programmed like an actual recital. 
where things like flow from one to the other. But now it seems like people are just putting it like the pieces are like in chronological order or something. Right, <laughs> like right. they just, it, it's not even trying because they know that the effort will be wasted. <laughs> They're in alphabetical order. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So I'm tempted to go into Rachmaninoff tangent, but I just think he's really one of the underrated composers out there. Oh, really? He was such a gifted melodist. And speaking of performing his piano concertos, I mean, his piano concertos are very tough to perform and they're also extraordinarily beautiful pieces of music sometimes tough music is kind of i think pointless or doesn't <laughs> achieve much sorry franz list i love you i love hungary i love the hungarian composers i just have a hard time taking a lot of your music seriously yeah <laughs> uh but rachmanov does not fall in that category his music is extremely hard but extremely artistic um and what's the name of the What's the name of the current Russian pianist? Denis Denis Matsuev. Ma- oh yeah, yeah, dude. I saw yeah. him. Um, I saw him in Ann Arbor one time playing. Oh seriously? I think Rachmaninoff actually. Okay, I think Rachmaninoff right, yeah. three. Yeah. Oh, fantastic! No, he he's fantastic. He's, he's such a great pianist. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So Denis Matsuev. He's a great pianist. He's a great educator too. He spends a lot of his time teaching, which I think huh. is really cool. I did not. I don't know, know where he finds the time, but yeah. So there's a performance on youtube of him playing i think i think it's two videos which would make sense he's playing at tchaikovsky symphony hall in moscow russia <laughs> of course nice it's a very recognizable symphony hall because it looks almost like a stadium <laughs> you know how they have those um i think there's a word for them like the vomitorium uh it's in a stadium where the people come out it comes from the latin yeah yeah uh it looks it looks like it's designed like a football like an American football stadium, but it's a concert hall. It's an indoor, indoor concert hall, all the, all the good stuff. But so anyway, that's Tchaikovsky Hall in uh, Moscow, Russia. And he plays back-to-back Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto 2 and Piano Concerto 3. <laughs> <laughs> wow, <laughs> Which <dude>. is insane. <laughs> and that he nails insane. both of them. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if it's a really good concert. It's really, it's filmed really well. There's a camera right next to the piano, which I always thought must be terrifying to pianists. You have a, a camera like an arm's length away watching your fingers go. Anyways, he plays Rachmaninoff the way it should be played. I mean, he plays with flawless technique and all that, but he really finds the beauty in his music, which so few people do, I think. Horowitz does as well. Um, his Rachmaninoff recordings are really f- phenomenal. Vladimir Horowitz, the great, uh, what would you say, Soviet, Russian, Jewish, but lived in America, pianist. So, <laughs> so there you go. Uh, <laughs> He's a pianist um, of the world. Yeah, it really was. And yeah, his recording of Rachmaninoff number three uh, with, who, who, it's with the New York Philharmonic. And who's conducting it? It's with... Um, Wait, are you talking about Zubin Mehta? Yeah, he was born in Mumbai. In India. Are you serious? Yeah. I mean, I know he's hailed in Israel. He was, you know, he kind of built the Israeli Philharmonic. Yeah, he, he really did. He yeah. really did. But, um, yeah. Yeah, so he, he is he is born in Mumbai. He's he's Indian, but he is, he's um, he's Parsi. And um, I think his religion is um, Zoroastrianism. Oh, fascinating. Is, okay, I did not know you that. You don't get too many of those around. <laughs> not, not conducting, at least. <laughs> yeah. 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 So, so anyway, so similar to Freddie Mercury, then I guess in terms of his right, right, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But but no. So um, yeah, no. It's a great performance. Vladimir Horowitz playing Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number no. Three with yeah, the New York Phil conducted by Zubin Mehta, and Horowitz is seventy six, I think, when he's performing it. 
which is crazy. I mean, he's more than retirement age for most people. <laughs> he's playing such a hard piano concerto and just absolutely nails it. And it, it looks like he's hardly trying. Rachmaninoff, yeah, such a great composer. Oh my goodness. Um, uh, I think he's really overlooked because his piano music is so hard and so complex. And him, he himself was such a great pianist, but he was also such a brilliant melodist who kind of took the next step from Tchaikovsky for the melodies of his symphonies, his solo works, his piano works, obviously his piano concertos. And, and this performance of Dennis Matsuev, I used to always prefer the third Rachmaninoff concerto over the second. And most would agree it's probably a little bit harder. Right. There's, I think it, sound, it sounds harder to me. It sounds hard. I think it has more notes than any piano concerto ever, like actual notes on the paper. Um, but again, that's almost insulting it because it is a really beautiful piece of music with beautiful melody, beautiful orchestration. Rachmaninoff, I don't think, gets enough credit for that. The orchestral part he wrote to accompany his piano concertos is really sublime and great. But this performance by Dennis Matsuev, I think it's conducted by Leonard Slatkin, actually. It's the oh, American cool. conductor. Yeah. 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 Who, who conducted in Detroit for a while. He did conduct in your, Detroit for your, a while. Yeah. Your Michigan orchestra there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, anyway, it's a beautiful performance and it kind of convinced me I might like the second Rachmaninoff concerto more than the third now. I don't know. I mean, they're both great in their own ways, but Rachmaninoff too is really nice. I'm team second all the way, and oh, really? not just because there's that gorgeous flute solo in the second movement there. There's a good flute solo in the third, too, or in the third concerto. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I, actually, no, yeah, you're right, but uh, it's, not as, it's, not, uh, it's not as famous as the second one. But Yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I really have a, a soft spot for the, for the second piano concerto. is the difference between or <laughs> horrible question um uh -oh. yeah let me try to phrase it a slightly different way um i don't have any i don't have any um real issues with rachmaninoff but 
I okay. never have really gotten that into him. Um, Interesting. Okay. But I love Tchaikovsky. Yeah. So what is the, what do you think is the sort of daylight between them? Like, where is, what, what is the meaningful difference between them? And how do I, you know, how do I like bridge the gap? Like, you, you, you know my taste. Yeah. Um, yeah, like, yeah. Where do I go? Where do I go to, to sort of appreciate Rachmaninoff more than I already do? Because I, right now it's sort of where I'm like, oh yeah, that's nice. And I can obviously see that he's a, you know, quote, great composer, but there's essentially no time that I actually just sort of put um, Rachmaninoff on for fun. So I so, really do believe Rachmaninoff is the 20th century Tchaikovsky. Okay. Um, in yeah, so it's they're both undoubtedly Russian. <laughs> uh, right. Yeah, they sound like Russian. And they use folk, um, Russian folk melodies, Russian harmonies, Russian everything. So there's that, but also it's a they're both such gifted melodists, and it's the way they build and construct their melodies over the course of their works. Over the course of yeah, their works as a whole, but also an individual piece, right? A good example, I guess, is I don't know uh, the beautiful, gorgeous melody from Tchaikovsky's Sixth Symphony. Da 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 da. That's a beautiful melody as I sing it right here and as you would hear in this clip we put in. But what makes that melody even more beautiful is the context it appears in, in the work. Right? How maybe contrary to what you would even think of Tchaikovsky, he doesn't really build up or develop this melody a whole lot. It just kind of appears out of context. I mean, out of context. It's in the context of a piece, but there's no true development towards the, towards the melody. And it doesn't get developed further than it's introduced. It kind of the whole symphony kind of just dies away, right? There's no grand coda, great finale to the symphony. It just kind of dwindles into nothing. But because of that, this melody from the Sixth Symphony is so much more than, than what it specifically is. When you experience it, it's just that much more powerful because of, of the way you hear it in relationship to everything that occurred around it. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. It's kind of like if you're just sitting at a cafe and you see someone really beautiful walking by and that's just the only glimpse that you'll ever get, right? That's just, yeah, yeah, right, right. Um, oh, exactly, yeah. It's yeah. this thing that just was there. and it, it le- I mean, Tchaikovsky does that in his piano concerto too, right? Where yeah, yeah, he does, yeah. He's, he starts it right off the bat with... Well, the, the, the piano is playing these huge... Are, are they huge chords? They're, they're, the pianist is banging yeah, away I mean, some something. Yeah, yeah. It's and these big chords up and down the piano. Yeah, and the orchestra is playing this gorgeous, you know, grand sweeping melody behind it.
once it's done, I haven't studied or I haven't done a deep study or analysis of this piece, but I don't believe that melody ever comes back, right? In I any don't think form. so. I'm pretty sure he I just, think so. he just yeah. drops a beautiful melody at the beginning and then just the rest of the piece sort of moves on from there. And it's not yeah. really, I'm sure maybe it shows up in some iteration or another, but in terms of recapitulating the melody, he just doesn't even bother. He just writes something gorgeous and lets it go. So Right, yeah. right. And yeah, so I mean, Tchaikovsky just had a way of melody, right? So he would have melodies that he would build to, right? And um, what's a good example? I guess the violin concerto, I guess, hmm. maybe, mm -hmm. right? So the climax of the first movement is actually, I think, the area where where the um, where the orchestra comes in, right? So the violin in introduces the theme, da dum dum, ya da 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 da. But the real climax comes when the orchestra finally takes over that theme. So the climax of the first movement of that violin concerto is when the violinist soloist isn't even playing. It's the orchestra. But the concerto is kind of moving towards that. And... And right, so in Tchaikovsky, what I thought he did so great with his concertos, his violin concerto, his piano concerto, is it's not soloist with orchestral accompaniment. It's a two-part interaction. The orchestra is just as much a soloist as a body itself. That plays a duet with the soloist, the individual violinist who's up there, or the pianist who's playing. Right. And Brachmanov does the same thing, I think, with his piano concertos is yeah both the second i'm actually not too, too familiar with the first so i can't speak to, to the first but with the second piano concerto and the third piano concerto yeah yeah they're the orchestra is just as much a relevant player and it's it's a duet between soloist and orchestra and yeah, Rachmaninoff yeah. does that the same way tchaikovsky did i think right the the there's a transcription of the um the what is it what's the official title like the rhapsody on a theme of paganini, By paganini? yeah yeah it's is it a set of variations or something? Pretty pretty much, pretty much, yeah. And there's one of them that's like really famous. I think people will recognize it. I can't name mm -hmm. which movies it's it's from off the top of my head, but it's it's really famous. Everyone will recognize yeah. it. We'll put a clip here, and okay. it's in like movies all over the place. You know what I'm talking about? Like the slow variation. Yeah, yeah. yep. I know exactly um, what you're talking about. Yeah. And I, I know that one is pretty cool because I, I think it it applies some of the sort of techniques that you would usually see in in like serialist music like um mm. like inversion or, or retrograde or retrograde inversion um it takes it takes this melody from paganini's 24th caprice right the one that also i think a lot of people will recognize It takes that melody and it just really slows it down. And um, I forget which um, methods he use on he uses on it, but he applies these sort of like rigorous serialist techniques on it, and he ends up with you know what has essentially become like this sort of movie anthem, this like romantic movie right. anthem.
So it, it's, it's a good exercise in like how pliable the the material of music actually is. You can take something that sounds like right. this fast virtuosic thing and all you need to do is like slow it down and like flip it around and it becomes yeah. like this gorgeous melody that you will hear in like, I don't know, like Titanic or something. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, and, and then the opening, so what you were referring to earlier, the opening of the Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto, the first Piano Concerto, I think he wrote two, but everyone just plays the first. Oh, really? I, I had no one. idea. I didn't even yeah, know. I don't that think anyone two. plays the second. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. I didn't even know so, that existed. Yeah. I actually can't remember if I've ever even listened. Maybe I should go listen to the second. Maybe it's really good. Probably <laughs> is. <laughs> um, so, but anyway, yeah, like the Netflix series, the Romanoffs, the trailer uses the, the opening from the first Tchaikovsky Piano Concerto. This, oh, it's very, I would describe it very Russian. It's not Soviet. It's very Russian. It's very czarist feeling <laughs> in a great way, yeah. in a great way. Tchaikovsky, I think, really embodied Russian identity, and he wrote, I mean, his music is just unmistakably Russian. Right. And Rachmaninoff is the same way. And I'm not sure if that's because the use of grand orchestration, big orchestras, if it's the use of melody, and the diverse use of melody, as we were kind of alluding to, right? So developing the melody to a grand climax, or the opposite, which we were saying, just the writing this gorgeous melody that just appears and then disappears and then you never hear it again ever and it's beautifully tragic that you don't get any more of it just right. like the girl walking by the bistro or the bar or something <laughs> yeah um so that just maybe it's because we've called it that and that's what it is but that just sounds russian i don't i don't love like postmodern thought of, of sort of you know everything is socially constructed but i'm happy to accept that our conception of what is Russian is socially constructed. Therefore, mm-hmm. this thing is just arbitrarily Russian. But to me, that doesn't change much. It still is, <laughs> so, it still is Russian. <laughs> right. And so your perception of Russian is either socially constructed or it's either state constructed. <laughs> <laughs> I'll take the former. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, man, that was an epic. We, we should get back to, I, uh, we should get back to um, the... What do you call it? Spiro? Spirio? Oh, the, yeah. Oh, the, oh, yeah. So we were talking yeah. about records, right? <laughs> we were talking about records, so, yeah. One of the other things I love about records, and one of the things I think we forget about, is how, I just think it's so cool, it's a physical representation of music and a piece of music, right? Where a CD, and obviously a computer, but let's take a CD, it's all stored, it's all stored in a digital format, right? It's all, it's all in a digital CD. But a record, it's the physical grooves, right? It's the, it's the actual texture of it that makes the sound. So it's a real-life physical object you can hold that creates a piece of music. Yeah. And there's something to be said for the size of it. I mean, hmm. I think what, one thing that, really, that, that I really like about records is, is just that it, it offers more of an opportunity for like album artwork to be something more more present in the experience like you can really make a more yeah um like polyartistic statement with a record than i think you can with a cd and certainly more than you can with like an album that you just put straight to streaming um, right right you know with streaming you can you, at least with cd you have liner notes with streaming you don't even have that really um, so I think there's something about the record where you can have like artwork and you can have the sort of liner notes and 
you can really create like a whole experience with more than just the music and cool so yeah i guess we're talking about record oh and before too i just want to say for those who want a good performance to watch on youtube dennis matuov playing both the Rachmaninoff concertos but especially the second and then the third is really good too but especially the second for some reason i feel this performance of him playing in russia i think it's with one of the big russian orchestras but leonard slatkin is conducting the american conductor and they're playing at Tchaikovsky Concert Hall. It's a really miraculous performance. I mean, both the orchestra and Dennis play so well. And it's also really well filmed, which I I, I think we both appreciate when you see it. The Berlin yeah. Digital Concert Hall usually does this very well. And other orchestras and performances have great cinematography as well. And this is one of them. It's filmed really well, and it feels like you're kind of there. So... It's a really great performance in addition to being really well played. So it's, it's a good performance on all the performers' parts. Let's say that. <laughs> awesome. Uh, so we'll yeah. link to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. L- look in the show notes for that. Um, so do you want to go back yeah. to, to the player piano? Thing? Yeah, well, and one more thing about records, yeah. I guess, is... Um, so this, I, I think, is funny. Did you know, did you know, Shreder, that the word groovy comes from the grooves on a record? That's pretty cool. Yeah, isn't that cool? I, yeah. I guess it makes sense that it came, that Groovy sounds like it's, like I'd be shocked if it was used before the 60s or something yeah. like that. So, yeah. yeah, no, it's cool. So anyways, so that's that whole section on record albums. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think we, we wanted to get back to the player piano. So the Steinway Spirio series. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> 2020 edition. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so with the piano, I think what, so one of the points I, I was kind of thinking about was it's just interesting to see how defensive musicians and just people get whenever automation is brought up. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I, I used to joke that your, your defense of human intelligence is inversely proportionate to your actual human intelligence. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Like, if you talk to any of the smartest people ever, they completely agree with the fact that humans are not very smart. <laughs> like, right. the human brain is such a limited thing. has very measurable biological limitations, whereas computers can, you know, yeah. go on forever, right? Anyway, I mean, the point I was trying to get to with this was um, with automation. So, this there's this fear in the musical circle, or at least the ones I have been, am, and have been a part of, that... The Steinway Spirio series and automating music and performance and stuff is going to take away the jobs of musicians. And pretty soon we're not going to go to live performances and we'll just have robots play and all this stuff, which I think is so utterly wrong um, and just false. I, I just think that's, that's not true. Um, of course, jobs and roles and things that humans do will be automated, right? If your job relies on producing something more quickly, more efficiently, that job will be automated. I think that's just a fact because computers right. will eventually do that. And all. I mean, quote, white collar work is no safe haven. Yeah. And creative work is not autom- is not safe either. I mean, of course not. No, absolutely They're already not. like, I mean, everyone knows already that um, something like uh, sports um, articles about what happened in the game is already being written by AI. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I believe they're, probably some ad jingles that you'd be surprised to hear are written by um, AI as well. 
there's AI machines that are developed at universities and by people in the industry too that are composing stuff, you know, things for commercials and just experiments and all this stuff. And I think that's pretty cool and pretty impressive. Um, and they've already done studies with them where professional musicians can't tell the difference between them and um, compositions made by humans. Right, that, right. That's and already, blind, we're already past that. Yeah, in a blind listen, you can't tell which yeah. one was written by the human and which one, which pieces were written by the computer. Yeah, right. absolutely. So it's funny. People are naturally, yeah, I, I think naturally afraid of this and get defensive pretty quickly. But I'm not worried about it. I think, ironically, I think one of the safest places to be is actually in entertainment. <laughs> uh, be an actor, be a musician. Um, because think about it this way. So almost everything in our society is getting cheaper every year, right, as time goes on. So computers are getting cheaper. Software is getting cheaper. The cloud is getting much cheaper. Cars are getting cheaper. Energy is getting cheaper, right? Almost everything in our society is getting cheaper every year. But what's getting more expensive? The things that are getting more expensive are the things that are experience-based, all right? So Hamilton tickets, your movie tickets, wine tasting, uh, weddings, right? The things that are experience-based are getting more expensive every year. They're the few things that are actually getting more expensive. You can throw it into that category, going to the symphony, going to the ballet, Absolutely. watching a movie. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think, I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the, the things that we have going for is, you know, is that when you go to see a concert, there's no, there's no illusion that you're going to see the best possible concert. You're going to experience something. I, th I think this goes with what you're saying. Like the things that are experiences are, are going to be much much better. When you go to see, when you go to see, I guess he's he's dead. But when you go, when you would have went to see someone like Jean-Pierre Rampal play mm -hmm. a flute concert, yeah. you would have paid top dollar for that. And and there's no universe in which that was the best flute concert happening in the world. There there are there always have been flutists who are better than. Ron Paul and mm -hmm. um, and Ron Paul admitted this freely himself. He would say, "I'm not the best flutist in the world. I'm just one of the more famous ones." And the best right. flutist in the world is actually probably someone. You know, Ron Paul would freely admit, "You know, I'm not the best flute player in the world. The best flute player in the world is probably someone who has some other job and then spends all his time practicing in his basement and never actually like plays in public." There's mm -hmm. probably someone of that caliber who just knows how to play the flute better than anyone that you or I have ever heard of. Right. And yet you come pay a lot of money to hear me play because of the experience that I can provide you as an artist, as someone who can provide right. human connection with you. Um, right. It's not about how fast I can play the flute or how good my sound is or how perfect my intonation is. It's never been about that. So right. therefore AI has no place, it has no real place in, in, in this field to like take over I think because yeah because that's just we're playing different games I mean yeah like when I go to play a concert I'm not telling the people like pay me to play the flute for you because I'm the best person you could possibly find to play to pay to play the flute for you right it's just I'm here and I'm a human being and I can connect with you and make your life hopefully better for like an hour yeah and then we'll like get on with it you know, right. it's as simple as right. that. And AI will, I don't think, ever fill that role, e even if it plays 
music that's indistinguishable and like the sort of record industry gets demolished because mm-hmm. there's no point in making CDs when you can make like digitally constructed CDs with AI that's better than any human could ever possibly play. Right, the concert right. as an establishment, I don't think will ever go away because no one's ever going to want to like just sit in front of a computer and like some waveforms. Like right. you do actually want to feel. It's the same way that people still go to chess tournaments. Like we were talking about chess earlier, <laughs> but like, yeah. I mean, what? Like we could we could just set up like two AIs and watch them play chess and have someone analyzing like the best possible game that could be happening. Mm-hmm. But you still want to go see the sport of chess. You want exactly, to see like yeah. what the human mind can do, and you want to feel the connection of being in proximity to that. Right. You know, it's mon- like for like, some reason, monkeys like seeing monkeys do monkey things. <laughs> <laughs> Most profound quote I've ever heard you say. (laughs) (laughs) Like, piano bars aren't going to go away. Like, if it was a Spirio automatic player piano, I don't think people would really care, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it's worth noting these AI engines and these player pianos and all this stuff, they're imitating humans, right? You find it impressive and you like to listen to it because it sounds like a human is playing it. You never say, oh, it sounds like a computer is playing it. That's why it's so cool. I wonder if there will come a point where, you know, when when AlphaGo beat, um, what what was his name? Was it Lee Sedong, the Go player? I I forget. Yeah, Yeah, the guy over Yeah, But But there was a whole thing with how AlphaGo was apparently teaching itself how to play Go in ways that humans were not um, considering how to play Go. Yeah, yeah. so it was like this, like this alien way of playing Go that was still beautiful and, um, you know, obviously could beat the best human player. Mm-hmm. I wonder if that'll ever happen with music. I wonder if there'll ever be some sort of developed, like, yeah. computer way of playing music that you're like, oh, that is really beautiful, but that's a impossible for a human to do, and b, we would never consider it. Yeah, that'd be super interesting. Yeah. That'd be super interesting. Yeah, and when you think about the performance value, you can't help but think of the great performers. Victor Borga, right? Yes. <laughs> the great Swedish pianist slash stand-up comedian. That was <laughs> yeah. That was just one of the funniest people of the 20th century. Yeah, um, just a legend, yeah. Oh, now I remember. I was going to speak about Mozart. I'm going to play an opera in, uh, in four flats because he had to move three times. <laughs> In that vein too, Louis Armstrong, right? He was, he was such a performer. He was, he was. I mean, an innovator. Yeah, and an innovator too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, um, people, even people in the trumpet world, dare I say, kind of underplay Louis Armstrong. Um, but Louis Armstrong was one of the greatest trumpet players, greatest artists of all time, right? He took jazz off the streets of New Orleans and turned it into an actual performance art rather than just a collaborative jam session, garage band sort of set up, right? He turned it into performance art and right. and created in so many ways, kind of created in so many ways jazz as as we know it, where people are just striving to imitate Louis Armstrong. Duke Ellington even said his dream band, his ideal band would be Louis Armstrong on every instrument. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the way he phrased music, the way he played, the way, the way he sang. Is anyone finer? 
in the state of Carolina. If there is any, you know, show to me. Dinah, the dick not pleasant. We love the city cases to the eyes of Dinah. Baby, every night, but I shake my fight. Oh, cut my dynamite, change the mind. Baby, this is your there's no one even today that can sing like that it was just so so unreplicable even by other humans and yeah. so and the innovations he brought right uh even swinging you know swing which we which is now just a cornerstone just a essential block building block of jazz back in the days before they called it swing they called it orchestrated armstrong oh i didn't know that yeah yeah wow so I'm not saying computers can't ever create these great innovations and accomplishments in music, but there's something to be said by the performance aspect and the entertainment aspect and what I was saying earlier, the experiential aspect, just like the record. Right. right. Why do we still listen to records now? I think it'll be the same reason why in 50 years we still listen to people play live. Yeah. Just a, a real quick note on Armstrong. I, I find it, you know, yeah. he's, he's in this interesting class of people that, um, that people get to sort of downplay the importance of hmm. precisely yeah. because their influence has been literally ubiquitous. So, <laughs> you know, if someone is like fairly influential and has influenced like 75% of a field, it's like hard to ignore, right? Yeah. But if someone literally creates their own field in which like 99 or 100% of what the field is nowadays is because of that person, then they can just happily fade into the background. And then, you know, people get to, like, make fun of him and be like, oh, you know, that's not as important as you think it is. But it's like, okay, well, you're only doing that because he's actually, you know, even more influential than someone like, I don't know, who's someone who's, like, very influential but not ubiquitous. I um, mean, we, we say someone like Wynton Marsalis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which he would be the first to say. I'm sure he's already said it. He's like, yeah, I accomplished some cool things, but I'm no Louis Armstrong. Right. Louis Armstrong, he brought jazz to New York. So think about that for a second. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a good uh, that's a good Twitter bio. <laughs> He's the one who turned jazz into a performance art and an actual genre of music. Right, right. And I, I love to, I mean, he even said, and you can disagree with, with this as you want, he, he would always said, I'm not a musician, I'm not a performer, I'm an entertainer. Yeah. Which I used to hear that quote and kind of, think he misspoke because i'm like oh no like music is higher than entertainment i don't care if people like the music i create because it lives beyond that but then i think oh no there's something actually really to that there's something to that that maybe i'm not i, I didn't appreciate back in back in my student days same here um I, I think it's helpful to sort of think think about the fact that that music can play different roles in different like um parts of your life like you, you can mm -hmm. you can you can say that music is is like really um it has a place in the intellectual pantheon along with philosophy and science and math um right. and i would agree with you mm -hmm. um and you can say that the composition of music is a is an endeavor that's like on par with those things and the performance of, of it should be like something as carefully produced as that um but that's for like the recording studio and that's for the composition class you know when when you're actually just when you're performing a concert i mean it, it, it seems like a lot of people make that kind of category error like I, I would even say glenn gould made that category error hmm. you know one of my major disagreements with him is that 
he saw what music could be in the studio, and he basically saw that the concert hall could never recreate that. Therefore, the concert the concert hall was subpar to the recording studio. Um, and I sort of think, no, it's simply the case that it's a different category. And when you're in front of people, you can be someone like Bach, who is a genius on the scale of Einstein or Shakespeare. Right. But when Bach is playing a concert in front of people, he is an entertainer. He's just when, like Louis. When he, <laughs> just like Louis. When he's in his house, like, you know, writing the um, violin partitas or something, you can say then he's an intellectual on the order of Albert Einstein. But yeah. the actual act of performing for people is nothing more than entertaining. Um, mm-hmm. You can like it or not, but that, that's what that sure, is. Sure, sure, yeah, but that's beside the point. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and with Louis Armstrong, again, it sounds ridiculous I say this. Yeah, he's kind of underappreciated in the trumpet world to some degree. I bet. Um, that's not surprising to me at all. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I would I would even say Jean-Pierre Rampal is under someone like Jean-Pierre Rampal is underappreciated in the flute world, you know. Okay, fair um, enough, fair enough. I think I think we're. You I know, mean, Glenn Gould is underappreciated in the piano world. Yeah. To be fair, so I think um, there's something with with the the kind of musician that ends up crossing you know all the kind of boundaries that we usually put up for ourselves. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't I don't necessarily think they get the most love from the people. Um, that are closest to them for that. Right, right. I think a narcissism of small differences sets in and um, all the sort of petty squabbles come up again. But Right. And um, yeah, one one of the things one one of the things I loved about Louis Armstrong too is I mean, I wish I could have seen him perform live. I mean, you know, he's been dead for a while, but uh, to those who were fortunate enough to see him perform live, they just said it was everything you expected and more. It was dinner and a show as, <laughs> as as they would say it was half brilliant jazz brilliant trumpet playing half stand-up comedy routine half this half that it was just so many mediums all squished into one performance and, and the way he sang right because he sang the way he played mm-hmm. where he played the way he sang mm-hmm. you can pick your order and he was just shameless in self-expression yeah, I mean, put another way, Leonard Bernstein was, I think um, my teacher Jean tells a story about um, how he asked Leonard Bernstein, you know, how is it that you are, how, how is it that you are such a genius, like day in, day out? Um, how can anyone do that? And, and Leonard Bernstein basically just said, you know, I don't feel like a genius every single day like everyone else i have good days and bad days and days that i feel inspired and days that i feel like like shit but when i'm actually on stage and i'm just performing i just say you know the like what i am right now is what you're gonna get and that's yeah that is that is where the genius comes in it's it's actually in the sort of ability to remove the dam between you and like your self-expression to just sort of sit there in front of you know five thousand people and say I kind of feel like shit today, and you're going to get that. You know, <laughs> right, th- that's right. kind of like the biggest step of genius. Um, or like, I feel great today, and then you're going to get that. I think a lot of people have a lot of trouble with with sort of expressing themselves on their best day as well. Um, right. But the sort of ability to stand there and be like, uh, you know, this is just who I am, and you're going to get it. And if you like it, you like it, and if you don't, fuck off. 
Yeah. You know, that, that's, that's, that is what the mark of genius is. And someone like Louis Armstrong, like, I think that's what the mark of a great performer is, too. Someone mm-hmm. like Louis Armstrong obviously had that in spades. And I think that's, that's ultimately what people go to see. That's sure, something sure. that an AI, you know, may not ever have. I don't know, yeah. maybe evil, but yeah. I think that's, that's what you, you go to see partly the, the failures of the human body as well. But you just right, go, right. you go to see all the foibles and, and like, again, you, you're like a monkey going to see a monkey do slightly cooler monkey things than, you're, <laughs> than you can do. Have you been to New Orleans by any chance? I've not. I've never been. You? I've not either. I've not either. I really want to go someday when it's safe to travel again. Don't yeah. go now. Um, <laughs> but yeah, for a few reasons. I mean, it's, it's Louis Armstrong International Airport, first of all, in New Orleans, oh, yeah. which I, greatest airport ever. Come on. And when I do go one of these days, oh, I'm bringing my trumpet. <laughs> not oh, a question yeah. about it. I oh, am yeah. bringing, Yeah. Yeah, just, uh, I mean, it's just a city, I've heard, again, I haven't been, I've heard, it's a city just full of music, which just yeah. sounds so awesome. Yeah, the Ken Burns jazz documentary, people, it's absolutely worth all 18 hours of it. <laughs> yeah, where, wherever it's available now, because we said it was like, it was on Amazon for a while, right? And then it got to Yeah, it's on it, Amazon but... for a while. I know it's, I'm sure it's on Canopy right now, and then mm. it occasionally pops up on Netflix, Amazon Prime, I think it's on the PBS app as well, so there's a few ways to watch it, but it's... You know, jazz is America's original art form, the first art form that we came up with. So I just have one one, one quick thing about the Spirio. Yeah. Um, I guess my my question is very simply: Why do the keys have to go down? I think there are some versions where it, the keys don't go down. It's just the hammers. But I think just for um, aesthetic okay. effect and for the the ooans, the ooh and ah, I think that's pretty much the sole reason. Okay. Actually, yeah. Because I've seen some okay. where the uh, I've seen some versions of player pianos where the keys don't move, but the hammers move and hit the strings. So if you close your eyes, you wouldn't know any difference. But okay. visually, visually, it's a lot more sexy when the when the keys move too. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Not not to me. I mean, honestly, the keys the key is what the keys are what what make it what make it creepy to me. Like if if it were gotcha. just if you know if if it were just um, the hammers going down, I'd have no problem with it. Um, and hmm. even if it were just in. Um, a recording of this piece done by an AI and I had no idea that it was an AI. Like, there's nothing There's nothing about the actual automated part of, like, the actual piano playing a recording that's yeah. creepy. But the the um, the moment the keys start moving, <laughs> because I know that they don't need to be moving, hmm. right? Uh, unless I'm yeah, wrong I mean, about that. No, I, no, they don't, because as yeah. long as the hammers hit the strings, right. Right, that's, that's yeah. what you need. So, so um, the moment the keys start mo- start moving, and I know that they don't need to be moving for any mechanical reason. I don't know. There's something in my brain where I just, I, it just seems like some line has been crossed, and now I'm like, I have like a slave ghost in my living room playing for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, I love it. Like, if I if I could afford one and had room for one, oh, I'd totally buy a stereo piano. I think it's so cool. Yeah, and just even as a pedagogical sort of tool, I think it. It just it'd be interesting to actually watch the keys Vladimir Horowitz was pushing down at you know and the pedal uh, how how he used the pedal I'd just be super curious to sit down and watch it and then there's all these cool settings on the piano where you can play duets with it and things too and oh that's pretty cool and again as spooky as it may be remember it's just a computer if you unplug it it stops working <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> I have one idea. I'm going to throw this out there and see see if yeah. you think this might be it. Because I, I, 
this just occurred to me, and I, I wonder if this is like what my brain is hitting hitting up against. Mm-hmm. I kind of had this like utopian vision that as technology gets better, um, the personality of the musician will get less and less in the way of the music actually mm, being mm. made, right? Sure, That's my sure. dream, that yeah. we're not actually thinking about, like, we're not creating these sort of, like, cults of personality around performers anymore. We're just sort of, like, the performer can just record something because they've amassed the skill to do so. Right. And now that recording is just there for the people, and there's no sort of um, egoism around it. Right, right, right. I understand. Yeah, I think technology can really like bring that to bring that like ideal to fruition. Yeah, and it seems like something where um, where we have this thing where it's like, oh, we can actually like put in Horowitz's CD and then see the keys being pressed down. It seems like it's delaying that moment where we can actually uh, just see. sort of like delete the performer from the mm. equation, which would be my dream. Like, I would love to have a, I think Glenn Gould called it like a a zero to one relationship with the audience where like I make something for people and people enjoy it and hopefully I get compensated for it, but (laughs) they don't actually know that it's me and there's no, like Mm. my, my actual personality is not tied in with this thing. And if someone said, okay, we're creating a flute now where like the keys are going to go down just like they did when you're recording it for all time, I kind of be like, I think I'm going to pass on that because I kind of want to like well, remove myself from this equation. Kind of echoes back to 433, doesn't it? I guess so. It, it all comes back to 433, yeah. The performer is not relevant anymore. Yeah. <laughs> and it doesn't really matter. Yeah, it's just they're not the main player. Right. Literally. Literally, yeah. <laughs> yeah, where it's just, um, it just, it just is. The music, the sounds, or whatever you want to call it, just are. And right. performer is just a secondary, if that at best. Yeah, like it's a the performer is just like a tool. Like exactly, yeah. someone had to learn the piano so that the sonata can be played. <laughs> right, right, and right. And this person was right. just that person. Yeah, yeah, it's, it happened to be the person that did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I totally understand. I'm curious what John Cage would be saying about <laughs> the Spirio piano. <laughs> that would be pretty good. Yeah, I would love to hear that. I do think it's time we read today's sponsor for our, our podcast. It is, let's see, today is, wow, it's Steinway with the, the brand new Spirio piano series. 